Welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. There are currently more than 100,000 satellites orbiting the Earth, from space junk to high-tech probes transmitting signals back to Earth. But one of these satellites is purported to be of extraterrestrial origin and has been circling our planet prior to the launch of Sputnik. This mysterious spacecraft is known as the Black Knight Satellite, alleged to be of alien provenance and being covered up by NASA for more than 60 years. Recently, a series of fast radio bursts was picked up by Stephen Hawking's Breakthrough Listen Initiative, which some have speculated could be coming from the technology of an advanced extraterrestrial species. This wouldn't be the first time a scientist picked up signals from the cosmos and believed it to be of alien origin. Nearly a century ago, Nikola Tesla claimed to have recorded electrical signals at his laboratory in Colorado Springs that were of intelligent nature. What do Tesla, Philip K. Dick, Marconi, John Keel, and Donald Keogh have to do with this story? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned to find out. It's truly one of the deepest plunges into the deep end we have yet taken here on the Paranormal Sun. Well, my friends, I hope that you're doing great wherever you are in the world. Again, I hope that those of you in the Northern Hemisphere are enjoying your summer. I know there's been a lot of record heat in a lot of places, so stay safe, stay cool, try and stay in the shade where you can. Down here in the Southern Hemisphere, it's definitely been winter. It's been very cold. Between the last few days, I mean, it's been gorgeous out, clear skies, blue skies, not a cloud anywhere, but it's been very cold overnight. We've got our first couple doses of frost. And unfortunately, between that and some technical difficulties, I'm getting this episode out to you a day late. But this is one of the most fascinating things that I've ever read about or or taken the time to learn about myself. So I think you're going to find it to be very fascinating tonight's story. And it's got lots of interesting tie-ins with lots of things. And as always at the end, folks, no matter how bizarre or unbelievable these stories may seem, it's up to you, the listeners, to make up your own mind. What do you think? Do you think that there is a shred of truth to it or not? That's why I present it. I leave it up to you, to my listeners. So aside from that, folks, we're not going to fuddle along too much with uh, the normal general show business because I've got several articles to get through for you and then the mainline show. But I do want to say a few things. Uh, one of those things is that I've been listening to a friend of the show who hosts another podcast on That's Not Canon Podcast Network, and that program is called The Paranoid Strain. And the host of that program is The Fearful Jesuit. Very good program, and I'd like to just allow The Fearful Jesuit to tell you a bit more about it right now. Hi, I'm Fearful Jesuit, host of The Paranoid Strain, a show that explains conspiracy theories to normal people. 
Every episode is carefully researched, fully scripted, and incorporates interviews, audio clips, original music, and a bunch of nonsense to explain the history, impact, and bizarre beliefs related to one conspiracy topic at a time. We're doing an extensive series on secret societies. You know, the Knights Templar, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, and we'd love to have you along for the ride. New episodes drop every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, folks, so I've found that program to be a very good companion to the Paranormal Sun, and that's what Fearful Jesuit has said as well. He get, he said that uh, our programs are basically two sides of the same coin. We come at slightly different subjects, but well, well-researched. We take a lot of time in what we do, and he puts out some excellent content, so I do encourage you to check that out. Now, on top of that, the other one is to my friends over at The Old 77. So, Scott, Matt, and Dave, thanks as always for your support. Dave, I've got your articles that you sent me. I'll be covering those over in this program. And aside from that, folks, all the listeners out there, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to me, listening to the program, taking the time to enjoy what I do and getting back to me, giving me the feedback. To a day in India, giving me some feedback about the Yeti episode, saying that uh, she really enjoyed it, great research, and lots of things that she'd not heard about. And also, of course, uh, Adriana and Nico in Texas gave me some excellent feedback about the Yeti episode as well. So I do really appreciate it because, especially when you're dealing with things like the Yeti, which is a long, long term cryptid, probably one of the first, and world famous. I do want to make sure that I'm doing it justice, so look, thank you so much for those kind words. It really does help, especially when I'm dealing with subjects like that, so thank you from the bottom of my heart. And like I say, everyone else out there in the world, I mean, it's just been going on and on. The listens of the Paranormal Sun continue to grow, countries all over the world. Recently, I've had people listening from Iceland, Switzerland, Jordan the UAE, Kuwait, Egypt, all kinds of countries we've never had before. And we've had a good growth in listenership in Norway as well. So again, Al from Forum Borealis, thanks for supporting the show. And thank you to the listeners joining us from Scandinavia. I do my best to present things that you'll be interested in. And if there is something that you would like me to cover over that I haven't, oftentimes it's just a matter of moving things around. Most of the topics that people suggest, I do have on the back burner. It's just a matter of getting through them all. So if you would like to reach out to me and get a hold of me, the best way is either to send an email to theparanormalsun at gmail.com. So all one word, theparanormalsun at gmail.com. The other way is that you can just go to the Instagram page and click the link in the bio, and that will take you to a web link. That will basically take you anywhere you want to go. You can also click on that same link in the show notes of each episode. I've had another contributor working behind the scenes, slaving away, trying to help me out with the paranormal sun, trying to help me improve what we do and how we do it. So when I get to it and when I've sat down and discussed it with that person, then I'll be letting you know who it is. But it is someone very near and dear to the program. And I do appreciate their hard work behind the scenes. Uh, It really is making my life a lot easier, and I do appreciate it. 
As for me, I'm alright, my friends, aside from a few strange dreams I've had as of late. I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks and trying to consume a lot of that stuff. Haven't been watching much TV, haven't been keeping up much with what's going on in the world in general. Just your kind of normal stuff. I kind of hear a bit about the big stuff, but um, in general, I'm staying away from the news most of the days and just doing what I enjoy. So with all of that having been said, it's time to get into the news of the dam for this episode. For So for those of you who may be new to the program, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort, and Charles Fort gathered a lot of this information, these topics, these subjects that we cover on the show, everything from lights in the sky to cattle mutilations, ghost ships, cryptids, all sorts of information. And he gathered it from magazines and newspaper periodicals from all over the world. He wrote it onto small note cards, and then he followed them away, and later he wrote a series of books on these subjects. Well, that gentleman was named Charles Fort. You may have heard of the term Fortian or Fortiana. Well, Charles Fort referred to any subject that is ignored or excluded by science as damned data. Therefore, every time we do our news segment here on the Paranormal Sun, it is called the News of the Damned as an homage to Charles Fort. And the first one we've got here, folks, is quite interesting, and this is from MSN.com. And it says, dozens of planets might have civilizations that know about Earth. And this was written by Dan Satherly. And it says 12 hours ago, so I'm not sure exactly what uh, what day it is, but I think this was actually from yesterday. It says, don't be surprised if E.T. decides to phone our home sometime soon. New research has found there are at least 29 potentially habitable planets orbiting other stars that could have both seen Earth and are close enough to have received radio waves from our planet in the past 5,000 years. And note that, folks. Note that radio waves, receiving radio waves, because it's going to come up again. Scientists in the U.S. looked at thousands of star systems located within 300 light years of Earth and how their vantage points have changed since human civilization began. They found 1,715 stars that have had a clear view of the Earth passing in front of the Sun. That's how our scientists find planets orbiting other stars. Another 319 will have the chance to see us in the next 5,000 years, containing another known 42 planets. Among these stars are seven known exoplanet hosts, including Ross 128, which saw Earth transit the Sun in the past, and Teagarten's star, and Trappist-1, which will start to see it in 29 and 1,642 years respectively, wrote Lisa Colton-Eager of Cornell University and Jacqueline Faraday of the Department of Astrophysics at the American Museum of Natural History. While the Earth's transit across the Sun is only temporary, we've been pumping out radio signals revealing our existence for about a century now, have we ever? We found that human-made radio waves have already swept over 75 of the closest stars on our list, the pair wrote. Well, yeah, we're not doing a very good job staying stealthy, are we? 
and long before that, life began changing the atmosphere in ways sufficiently advanced alien astronomers could likely detect. The steam engine's invention in the late 1700s kick-started human-made global warming, but there have been other significant changes to climate in the past. The discussion on whether or not we should send out active signals or try to hide our presence is ongoing. I don't think it matters with the uh, radio signals. However, our biosphere has modified our planet's atmosphere for billions of years, something that we hope to find on other Earth-like planets soon. Thus, observing Earth as a transiting planet could have classified it as a living world since the Great Oxidation event for a billion years already, thought through the buildup of oxygen and ozone in the presence of a reducing gas that provides a long timeline for nominal civilizations to identify Earth as an interesting planet. The furthest space probe we've sent today is Voyager 1, launched in 1977 and now in interstellar space, about 19 light hours from the sun. It's pretty crazy, folks. So that's been out there for 40, it'll be 44 years this year, and it's only 19 light hours. It's insane, you know, because we talk about light speed and the size of the universe. It just goes to show that that has not even been gone a day when you're dealing with light speed. It's pretty insane. So, yeah, it is interesting, and, um, yeah, I would say I'd still be in the camp that wouldn't want to be shouting out there to everyone that were here, but I would also have to say I'm firmly in the camp that says we've already told other civilizations that we're here because our radio and TV signals are telling them we're here on top of everything else. So interesting, folks, and we'll continue to keep an eye on that as always around here. And the next one's from our chapter president in Missouri, Dave from the old 77. Again, Dave, thank you for sending me these articles. And this first one is from The Hollywood Reporter, and it says, J.J. Abrams producing a UFO docuseries for Showtime. Documentary promises shocking testimony and a serious examination of UFOs slash UAPs. And this is from June the 16th. J.J. Abrams' latest project is going to take a close look at the UFO phenomena. The Rise of Skywalker director is executive producing a four-part docuseries titled UFO for Showtime. Abrams is teaming with directors Mark Monroe, Icarus, and Paul Crowder, Riding Giants, to explore the unsettling theories of a subject that recently reached national headlines and has historically been the focus of powerful politicians and CEOs. While average citizens pursuing the very same truth have been ridiculed and ostracized, at 100%. The show will also look at what clandestine influence the American government, lucrative private companies, and the military may have in shielding the truth behind extraterrestrial phenomena to further their own agendas, and examine the history of the phenomena through cultural and political touchpoints, including shocking testimony from eyewitnesses across the country. Ultimately, the project promises to confront the most enigmatic questions of all. Why do we believe what we believe? And what is the elusive truth beyond the decades-long mystery? Other executive producers include Glenn Zipper, Monroe, and Sean Stewart, along with Ben Stevenson and Rachel Rush Rich from Bad Robot. The news was announced Wednesday just as members of the House Intelligence Committee 
are expected to receive a classified briefing on UFO sightings dubbed UAP for unidentified aerial phenomena. An unclassified version of the much-buzzed-about report is expected to be given to Congress by the end of the month. According to the New York Times, the report is expected to be inconclusive as to whether the sightings are extraterrestrial in nature, as skeptics contend, either have mundane explanations, or represent a next generation of top-secret aircraft. In May, former President Barack Obama seemed to confirm that the Navy's reported encounters with objects were of legitimate concern. Well, of course they are, idiots. What is true, and I'm actually being serious here, is that there is footage and records of objects in the sky that we don't know exactly what they are, Obama said on The Late Late Show with James Corden. We can't explain how they move, their trajectory. They did not have an easily explainable pattern. And so I think the people still take seriously trying to investigate and figure out what that is. Well, yeah, folks, I've said it over and over and over and over and over again, and I'm actually really tired of it. We have objects in our airspace, including military airspace, including airspace that is shared with commercial airliners that you can't explain. It is an issue. It is a national security issue. Anyone who can't see that is either being willfully ignorant blind or a moron i'm sorry but i just get tired of hearing this oh well there could be an issue yes there's an issue you freaking morons how can there not be an issue something is operating in the airspace of your country and you are supposed to be the superpower on the planet something is operating with impunity doing what it likes now, again, if you're in that camp that thinks that it's all hallucinations, pink elephants, the planet Venus, yeah, I guess you can explain it away. But I just cannot get the stupid comments of people saying, oh, well, maybe it's an issue. It is an issue. Come on. It doesn't matter what it is, in, in my humble opinion. If it is something that's tracking on radar and is tracking visually by people, it needs to be explained at the end of the day. And you don't stop investigating it until you can explain it all. Okay? It's that simple. The only reason why you would not do that is if it's something you've already discovered that you have no control over, i.e. it is a, another group that you cannot stop and therefore you don't want to waste any more resources on it, or you don't want to draw people's attentions to it. I'm sorry, but to me, it's beyond belief how it could be anything else if you're just going to try and explain it out of hand. But again, that's just me. There's my uh, upset take for this Thursday evening, folks, and now we're going to move on to the next one. So again, thanks, Dave, and everyone else out there, if you want to be like Dave, if you've got articles out there you want me to cover on the show, by all means, send them through. The best way is by email. The second best way is probably by Instagram Messenger or Facebook Messenger. So the next one here is quite long, and this is also from Dave, so thank you, Dave. Now, I don't think I'm going to go into the entire thing, because it's probably going to be a 10-15 to 15 minute read, but um, we'll see. We'll get started on it. Now, this one says, the woman who forced the U.S. government to take UFOs seriously 
And again, this is the stuff that just makes me laugh. If they're not taking it seriously, they're not doing their jobs. In 1999, Leslie Keen was handed a 90-page report of UFO sightings by pilots. After publishing her first story on the subject, she was hooked by Su Yoon. If it wasn't for the French dossier, UFOs might not have dominated Leslie Keen's life for the past two decades. In 1999, the independent journalist was handed a scoop by a French colleague, a 90-page report of UFO sightings by military and commercial pilots. The document, called UFOs in Defense, for What Must We Prepare Ourselves in French, was eventually published by a French military think tank. I thought, my God, this is huge. Generals and admirals saying they think it's likely we're being visited by craft that are extraterrestrial. They didn't say they could prove it, but they said it's a very good hypothesis for what they studied for three years, Keene told The Guardian during a phone call from her family's country home in Massachusetts. That was a major story. What if they're right? What if the equivalent stature of people in America said what these people are saying? At the time, Keene was an on-air public radio host in San Francisco. When she first approached editors, she avoided using the word UFO due to the stigma surrounding the topic. She hedged around it, referring to a report out of France about unusual aerial phenomena, or UAPs. It took her six months to find an outlet willing to work with her, and she finally found one in the Boston Globe, although the piece was heavily edited with quirky, jokey things, of course. Still from then on, she was hooked. This is like no other topic. This has a transcendent quality for me. And how many journalists are going to take on UFOs? Not many. Today, the hypothetical situation Keen extrapolated from the French report of U.S. military and government leaders speaking openly about sightings of inexplicable flying objects has arrived. By the 25th of June, the Department of Defense's Director of National Intelligence is expected to release an unclassified report to Congress detailing the accounts of unidentified aerial phenomena, sightings by military pilots, making it the government's most transparent and substantive, substantive release of such information ever made public. Despite being deeply entrenched in a fringe subject for over 20 years, the oddest thing about Keene is she doesn't come across as odd. Well, yeah, again, this is the annoyance to me. Not everyone in this field is odd, strange, weird. Not everyone's like me, okay? There are lots of people in this field who are just every bit as intelligent and every bit as onto it as in any other field. Her narrative is not one of lone wolf eccentric who toiled in the paranormal world before hitting pay dirt. My goal has been to take this out of the weird. Maybe it's partly because I'm not weird myself, she said. Keen who begged off giving her age, comes across as measured and practical. She sports short, graying, curly hair. On the phone, she sounds like your elementary school teacher. She's descended from one of America's oldest political dynasties and is supported by a supplemental family income. She declined to disclose the amount, but admitted that without it, she would not have been able to focus full-time on UFOs. And not many people can, folks. You don't make a lot of money in the field. At times, her voice takes on a timbre of awe or excitement, although she doesn't radiate the kinetic energy usually exhibited by journalists in New York City. 
nor any evangelical seal. When I mentioned ufologist, she bristled. I don't like the term. I would never describe myself as that. I'm an investigative journalist. Ufology, at least in America, these are people who are self-proclaimed researchers. Asked about the I want to believe X-Files poster propped against a wall in her home office, like that of the show's FBI special agent Fox Mulder, she said she's she found it in a flea market in Santiago, Chile, and brought and bought it because she was amazed it showed up there and just liked the way it looked. Her plain spokenness may just be her personality, or the result of her years she spent studying and practicing Buddhism, starting at Bard College in New York. Part of it may be the insulation of privilege. Keene grew up in New York as one of four children. She graduated from Spence, a private all-girls school on the Upper East Side. None of her siblings are interested in her passions. In addition to writing about UFOs, Keene took four years to write Surviving Death, a journalist investigates evidence of an afterlife. But they're supportive, she said. And... um. That's interesting. Maybe she is involved with that TV show. Because, I mean, that's the name of the show that I've talked about many times and suggested that you go watch the one on Netflix. At Bard, she initially majored in classical guitar. After two years, she switched her major to biology. Whatever the origins, that patrician stayedness has served her well during her dogged investigations. After the French report, it took years for Keane to get up to speed. She had to track down sources and the learning curve to differentiate those who were credible from those who were not was steep. I did press conferences and I filed a lawsuit against NASA to obtain information about a 1965 sighting of a car-sized object crashing from the sky in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. I was really, really working on bringing UFOs seriously into the mainstream, and I did that a lot, she said in a follow-up conversation from her New York apartment this week. I didn't have an issue with people ridiculing me, because the way I reported on this, it just didn't invite ridicule. I didn't do the weird sensationalistic conspiratorial stuff. I just did stuff like what's in my book. Very straightforward, good sources. Along the way, she allied with people who had the clout to help her further her research. She eventually connected with John Podesta, Bill Clinton's chief of staff, and an eventual advisor to Barack Obama and an avid booster of UFO research. In 2007, Keane and James Fox, the director of the documentary The Phenomenon, excellent documentary, by the way, arranged a briefing in which high-ranking military officials and government personnel discussed close encounters with UFOs. Each of the 14 speakers only had five minutes to tell their stories, so Keane got the idea to have them each write their own accounts and turn it into a book which became the 2010 best-selling UFOs. Generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. Yep, definitely heard of that book. In it, she argued for a central clearinghouse to collect information about UFOs. Podesta wrote the foreword, but declined to comment for this article. Keene's biggest breakthrough came in 2017, when she was invited by a longtime source to meet with Luis, or Lou Elizondo, on the day he resigned as the director of a clandestine Pentagon program that collected information about UFOs, the Shadowy Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP. Essentially, he revealed the very program she had lobbied for. Keene teamed up with Ralph Blumenthal and Helen Cooper to write up her scoop for the New York Times. 
Glowing Auras, and Black Money, the Pentagon's Mysterious UFO Program. The story revealed the existence of a tip from 2007 to 2012, funded by an initiative from former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid and fellow Senators Ted Stevens and Daniel Inouye. Reid is an un- unabashed fan of Keynes. He has read all of her books and credits her, at least in part, for the shifting cultural acceptance of UFOs. She's a sensational journalist and is an exceptional talent. She writes, it appears, with her heart. She gives me the idea that she means what she says, Reed said. The publication of that story changed everything, Keen said. I've been on this journey. I've been so rewarded by seeing the way things have changed since 2017. Since then, she has written on the subject for the New York Times, been fielding interviews herself, and worked on more documentary projects. In 2018, director Lasse Hallstrom and producer Laura Bickford announced they were making a movie based on Keene's UFO book. In May, HBO Max signed on. Finally, Keene was fully vindicated. In March, the New Yorker magazine published a story, How the Pentagon Started Taking UFOs Seriously, Yep, which featured Keene's work in the lead-up to the unclassified report. In May, 60 Minutes aired a segment on UFOs. So yeah, folks, a lot of this I've gone over, and I think that she does a very good job in what she does. Um, I'm just skipping over some more of this because there's another several paragraphs, but here, this is interesting. Through observations, we are quite convinced that we're dealing with a technology that is multi-generational, several generations ahead of what we consider next-generation technology, something that could be between 50 to 1,000 years ahead of us. They can outperform, frankly, anything that we have in our inventory, and we're pretty certain anything that our foreign adversaries have in their inventory. Then yes, obviously, as human beings, we tend to go down that rabbit hole of speculation. Ah, but I thought that this Pentagon report is going to say, well, maybe it's the Russians or the Chinese. So you've got to ask yourself at home, at home folks, do you really think the Chinese or the Russians, are 50 to 1,000 years ahead of the U.S. military. The same military that spends more money each year than I think it's the next 17 countries' militaries combined. Are you going to tell me anyone is ahead of them? Now, they may be in certain areas, and they may be slightly ahead, but 50 to 1,000 years ahead? Yeah, you've really got to ask yourself, what kind of BS is that? But anyway, folks, that's a good article, and as with all of these, as always, there'll be a link in the show notes, so you can read the end yourself if you want, but um, there's a lot of rehashing of some of the stuff I've already covered. But again, thanks, Dave, for sending that our way. Excellent, excellent article. Now, the next one here is from coasttocoastam.com, and definitely made me think of a friend of the show from the Zen Sandwich podcast and our chapter president in Japan, Mark. So, Mark, this one here says, UFO Research Facility to Open in Japan. UFO enthusiasts in Japan have announced plans to open a research facility that they hope will provide new insights into the mysterious phenomena. According to a local media report, the veritable flying saucer laboratory will be a new addition to the UFO Furii Khan, which is a museum in the community of Lino, that is devoted to the enigmatic topic. The location is rather famous in Japan due to the high volume of strange sightings in the area, 
which have earned the site the nickname UFO Town. Although the museum first opened in 1992, it largely served as more of a celebration of the phenomena than various ex- with various exhibitions and attractions centered around UFOs. Now, however, it plans to take a more proactive approach to the subject. To that end, the forthcoming research facility intends to collect and analyze UFO reports from across the country, while also serving as a hub for researchers throughout Japan. Additionally, they have a rather ambitious and audacious plan to conduct experiments with an eye towards somehow drawing unidentified flying objects to the area. Lest one think that the facility is merely a fantastic flight of fancy, it would appear to be a rather serious endeavor, as it will be operated by the editor of a paranormal magazine in Japan, and a whopping 30 local residents have already volunteered to help with the project, which is slated to begin operation later this month. Yeah, interesting one there, folks. The Japanese are definitely more open to UFOs than we have tended to be in the West over the years as far as an overall culture, and we'll see what comes out of that. So, Mark, maybe you're going to have to go and check out this UFO Research Center for us. Now, the next one here is also from Coast to Coast AM, and this is a different twist on your old uh, issue of dating. And this one says, British woman claims to have fallen in love with alien that abducted her. This is from June the 22nd. In a bizarre story out of Britain, a woman claims that she has fallen in love with an alien from the Andromeda Galaxy after the E.T. had abducted her. Actress Abby Bella's remarkable romance reportedly started when she lamented online about her lackluster love life, particularly her problems with men from Earth, which led her to joke that perhaps she would have better luck dating an alien. Shortly thereafter, she began having recurring dreams of a white light and these mysterious experiences culminated one magical evening wherein she believes that she met her soulmate from outer space. Having been instructed by a voice in her dream to wait in the usual spot, the following night she sat perched by her window, and suddenly a flying saucer appeared outside. The actress was quickly transported onto the craft by way of a green bean. While aboard the UFO, Bella says, she encountered five extraterrestrials who were very tall and slender yet also appeared somewhat human. According to Bella, she immediately felt smitten with one particular E.T., and to her surprise, the alien was also overtaken by love at first sight when they connected. The entity was apparently so enamored with the actress that she was offered the opportunity to remain on the ship and pursue the unorthodox relationship, but Bella was fearful of being forced to leave Earth forever, so she opted to return home. Alas, like a Shakespearean play, this was the last she saw of her would-be interstellar paramour, though she has not given up hope that they will meet again. Keeping an overnight bag packed for when the alien returns, Bella mused that, I hope he comes back. I'm willing to visit the Andromeda Galaxy. Well, um, yeah, maybe he found out she was pregnant and he just went out for a pack of smokes, not coming home. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, interesting story nonetheless. Seems to be a bit of that in the UK. There was the lady who uh, married the pirate ghost, and now you got this lady who's um, wanting to uh, have a relationship with aliens. So we'll see to each their own. Now the next one here, folks, is a follow-up of what I covered last week. Sadly, 
ended up being true. And this one says, Stones that sparked diamond rush in South Africa revealed to be quartz. In a not altogether surprising term of events, an analysis of the mystery stones, which set off a veritable diamond rush in South Africa, has determined that the gems in question were merely quartz crystals. For the last week, the community of Kwahlauf has been besieged by individuals hoping to unearth diamonds after a cattle herder discovered some peculiar crystal-like rocks that many people suspected were precious gems. Despite government officials cautioning that the stones, which kept being unearthed in the town, were almost certainly not diamonds, this did not stop thousands of people from journeying to the area in hopes of getting a piece of the proverbial action. Sadly, their dreams were definitely dashed on Saturday, sorry, Sunday, when an official with the country's Economic Development, Tourism, and Environmental Affairs Department reportedly announced their findings from studying the stones at the center of the strange affair. The test conducted conclusively revealed that the stones discovered in the area are not diamonds, as some had hoped. Ravi Pillay said, in fact, what has been discovered are quartz crystals. Adding insult to injury, the official shared the painful observation that the value of quartz crystals is very low compared to that of diamonds, which of course most of us know. Despite the government debunking the diamonds that had been discovered in Kwahal, a local media report indicated that approximately 200 people returned to the field on Monday to continue digging. Many of them reasoned that even if the quartz is considerably less value than they had originally thought, the stones could generate some much-needed income, since they are out of work and struggling financially. But that is, be that as it may, authorities have issued a stern warning to the remaining treasure hunters that their actions are both illegal and could cause the additional spread of coronavirus in South Africa. So yes, sadly there, folks, not diamonds, uh, quartz crystals. And something I didn't know until later in the week, and I was doing a bit of further research, and because I, I was trying to find out basically exactly this, had they found out if they were diamonds or not. And I didn't realize that if you dig up a raw diamond in South Africa without a permit, you're actually breaking the law. You're not allowed to have it. So, yeah, um, you have to have permits. You have to have your mining uh, paperwork all lined up. Or if you get caught with it, you're probably going to forfeit the stone and go to jail. So the next one here is also from Coast to Coast AM. And this is for our chapter president in Pennsylvania, Nate. And uh, also for Skinwalker in New York, who spent many years in Pennsylvania. And this one says, why is Pennsylvania such a hotspot for UFOs? Famous for its professional sports teams, coal and steel industries, and Roll as one of the 13 original colonies of the U.S., Pennsylvania is reportedly also becoming well-known for the weirdness in its skies. According to the UFO Research Center of Pennsylvania, the eastern state has logged over 3,500 UFO sightings in the past 70 years, which may not have come as a surprise to investigators of the phenomena like Butch Witkowski, the founder of the center who claims to have sighted alien craft on more than a dozen occasions himself. Among the incidents reported is the 1952 sighting of a fast-moving, flaming orange-red football-shaped object. So a football in this case being an American football, so oval-shaped. About three feet across that nearly collided with a small airplane in Allentown. In 1965, a fiery object crashed near Kecksburg, 
got the attention of state and federal agents who responded to the scene to investigate, and UFO sightings have picked up considerably in recent years. Already in 2021, an oval-shaped spaceship flying close to the ground has been reported in reading. So what does all of this activity mean for Pennsylvania? Some UFO enthusiasts say it's a sign that aliens are moving closer to establishing more straightforward contact with humans of Earth. That's presumably an intriguing possibility for those who, like Witkowski, don't believe that the U.S. government's upcoming report on UAPs will officially confirm that at least some of the objects documented are indeed alien craft. All right, folks, so one last one here, and then we'll get into tonight's main subject. And this is an interesting one. Eerie well from hell in Yemen leads officials scratching their heads. A curious and rather eerie chasm dubbed the well from hell continues to baffle authorities in Yemen, despite being in existence for centuries. The peculiar pit, which is located in the country's Al-Mahara, near the border with Oman, reportedly measures about 98 feet in diameter. However, its depth is actually a mystery. We've never reached the bottom of this well, explained Salah Babhir, an official with Al-Mahra's Geological Survey and Mineral Resource Authority, as there's little oxygen and no ventilation. As such, experts can only guess how deep the hole might be, with estimates ranging from around 300 feet up to approximately 800 feet. According to Bob here, the hole has been in the desert for millions and millions of years, and as one might imagine, some rather unsettling legends have been attached to it over that time. Due to an unpleasant odor emanating from the pit, it has come to be regarded by people living in the area as a prison for demons, specifically the infamous jinn. There are also claims that those who venture too close to the pit can wind up being pulled into it, presumably never to be seen again. Remarkably, belief in the ominous nature of the chasm is so significant that many local residents not only refuse to go near it, but some will not even talk about it out of fear of unleashing the dark forces believed to be within the pit. Detailing one expedition to the hole in an attempt to learn more about it, Babhir indicated that officials only managed to get around 175 feet down into the pit before abandoning the operation. We noticed strange things inside. We also smelled something strange, he recalled, before musing that it's a mysterious situation. Alas, Babhir did not elaborate on what strange things were seen inside the well from hell, which will likely only fuel the legends of it being the domain of demonic beings. Considering that the chasm has been around longer than anyone can remember, yet it is still quite mysterious, he rightly observed that these places require more study, research, and investigation. That is, of course, assuming they can find someone brave enough to go down there. Makes you wonder if it isn't a bit of Mel's Hole, my friends. Those of you who were long-time listeners to Art Bell like me, you'll know what that is right away. So with that, my friends, that is the news of the dam for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed those articles. And again, there's links in the show notes. Now it's time for you to go away and get yourself a nice beverage, be it an adult beverage or a cup of coffee or tea or whatever you'd like to drink. Sit back and relax. And you're going to hear one of the most unbelievable stories you've ever heard in the realms of UFOs and ETs, the story of the Black Knight Satellite.
Black Knight satellite is without a doubt one of the most talked about potentially extraterrestrial objects orbiting our planet at the moment. When first sighted in orbit, it was thought to be a Russian spy satellite, but this was very quickly dismissed. The real question is, for how long has it been there? And better yet, who put the mysterious satellite into orbit? And not just any orbit, but polar orbit. According to several researchers and scientists worldwide, this object is claimed to be emitting a radio frequency that has been intercepted and even decoded. According to some ham radio operators, the Black Knight is actually transmitting an alien message that has a connection with the Epsilon Butai star system. But the story goes back far before the current day. Even though skeptics remain confident that the alleged mythical satellite does not exist, there have been many reports suggesting that the alien satellite does in fact exist and is orbiting the planet. It is believed that the enigmatic alien satellite has been emitting a radio frequency that has been intercepted not only by space agencies around the globe, but by several amateur radio operators who believe the truth behind the Black Knight is far more mysterious than anyone is willing to accept. One of the most interesting facts is that Nikolai Tesla claimed to have intercepted radio signals from space, possibly from the same Black Knight satellite. Nikola Tesla is considered one of the most innovative and mysterious men who ever lived. Tesla's inventions went far beyond electricity. He made groundbreaking discoveries, such as wireless radio communications, turbine engines, helicopters, although that was da Vinci who first had the idea, fluorescent and neon lights, torpedoes, and x-rays, among others. By the time of, the time of his death, Tesla held nearly 700 worldwide patents. On the 17th of May, 1899, Tesla moved to Colorado Springs, where he would investigate atmospheric electricity, observed lightning signals via his receivers. Tesla stated that he observed stationary waves during this time. In 1899, Tesla, with the aid of his financial backer J.P. Morgan, set up at Colorado Springs, an experimental laboratory containing high-voltage radio transmission equipment. The lab had a 200-foot high tower for transmission and reception of radio waves and the best receiving equipment available at the time. One night, when he was alone in the laboratory, Tesla observed what he cautiously referred to as electrical actions, which definitely appeared to be intelligent signals. The changes were taking place periodically, and with such a clear suggestion of number and order that they could not be traced to any cause known to him. Tesla elaborated on the subject of talking with the planets in Collier's Weekly in March 1901. As I was improving my machines for the production of intense electrical actions, I was also perfecting the means for observing feeble efforts. One of the most interesting results, and also one of great practical importance, was the development of certain contrivances for indicating at a distance of many hundred miles an approaching storm, its direction, speed, and distance traveled. It was in carrying out this work that for the first time I discovered those mysterious effects which have elicited such unusual interest. I had perfected the apparatus referred to so far that from my laboratory in the Colorado mountains I could feel the pulse of the lobe, as it were, noting every electrical change that occurred within a radius of 1,100 miles. 
I can never forget the first sessions I experienced when it dawned upon me that I had observed something possibly of incalculable consequences to mankind. I felt as though I were present, present at the birth of a new knowledge or the revelation of a great truth. My first observations positively terrified me, as there was present in them something mysterious, not to say supernatural, and I was alone in my laboratory at night. But at that time, the idea of these disturbances being intelligently controlled signals did not yet present itself to me. The changes I noted were taking place periodically and with such clear suggestion of number and order that they were not traceable to any cause known to me. I was familiar, of course, with such electrical disturbances as are produced by the sun, aurora borealis, and earth currents, and I was as sure as I could be of any fact that these variations were due to none of these causes. The nature of my experiments precluded the possibility of the changes being produced by atmospheric disturbances, as has been rashly asserted by some. It was some time afterward, when the thought flashed upon my mind, that the disturbances I had observed might be due to an intelligent control. Although I could not at the time decipher their meaning, it was impossible for me to think of them as having been entirely accidental. The feeling is constantly growing on me that I had been the first to hear the greeting of one planet to another. A purpose was behind these electrical signals. This incident was the first of many in which Tesla intercepted what he felt were intelligent signals from space. At the time, it was surmised by prominent scientists that Mars would be a likely haven for intelligent life in our solar system, and Tesla at first thought these signals may be originating from the red planet. He would later change this viewpoint as he became more adept at translating the mysterious signals. Near the end of his life, Tesla had developed several inventions that allegedly could send powerful amounts of energy to the other planets. In 1937, during one of his birthday press conferences, Tesla announced, I have devoted much of my time over the years to the perfecting of a new, small and compact apparatus by which energy in considerable amounts can now be flashed through interstellar space to any distance without the slightest disperation. That's from the New York Times, July the 11th, 1937. Tesla never publicly revealed the technical detail of his improved transmitter, but in 1937 he made another announcement. He revealed a new formula showing that the kinetic and potential energy of a body is the result of motion and determined by the product of its mass and the square of its velocity. Let the mass be reduced. The energy is reduced by the same proportion. If it be reduced to zero, the energy is likewise zero for any finite velocity. And that was from the New York Sun the day after, so July the 12th of 1937. After his initial Colorado Springs experiments in 1899, Tesla started experimenting with better radio transmitters and receivers in order to repeat his reception of the anomalous signals he picked up in Colorado. Tesla considered his methods of reception and transmission utilized not Hertzian waves, or what we would now refer to as transverse electromagnetic waves, or radio, but another type of signal transmission. He described them as faster than light, or FTL, longitudinal wave transmissions. Tesla may have been receiving on the ELF spectrum, extremely low frequencies, 
The ELF spectrum is below 10 kHz, boundary for internationally regulated frequencies. It is usually considered to be the spectrum of 3 Hz to 30 Hz. VLF is 3 to 30 Hz. ULF is 300 to 3000 Hz. The ELF is 3 to 300 Hz. The wavelengths in the ELF range are from 100,000 km to 1,000 km, and the wavelength for the Earth's 40,000 km's circumference falls within that spread. Not long after Tesla's reception, an amateur radio operator in Norway named Jorgen Halls recorded transmissions called long-delayed echoes, or LDEs. Stanford professor Ron Bracewell proposed the idea that these echoes were the product of an alien satellite picking up radio signals from Earth and rebroadcasting them back, creating a delay of several seconds. Some speculate that the Black Knight could be this theoretical transmitter, known as a Bracewell probe. By the 1920s, Tesla had grown confident that he was able to make sense of the strange radio broadcast from space. However, soon afterward, Tesla began to express great concerns about beings from other planets who had unsavory designs for the planet Earth. The signals are too strong to have traveled the great distances from Mars to Earth, wrote Tesla, so I am forced to admit to myself that the sources must come from somewhere in nearby space or even on the moon. I am certain, however, that the creatures that communicate with each other every night are not from Mars or possibly from any other planet in our solar system. Guglielmo Marconi, first Marquis of Marconi, an Italian inventor and electrical engineer known for his pioneering work on long-distance radio transmission and his development of Marconi's Law and a radio telegraph system, would have his own encounter. Several years after Tesla announced his reception of signals from space, Marconi also intercepted signals originating from space a few years later. Researchers have since claimed that Tesla and Marconi intercepted the same signals. Marconi claimed to have heard from an alien radio transmitter. However, Marconi was just as quickly dismissed by his contemporaries, who claimed he had received interference from another radio station on Earth. Tesla, on the other hand, had perfected his equipment to such a degree that he was soon receiving voice transmissions. These transmissions, he speculated, were originating from people on other worlds. Tesla gave a few public hints about these interplanetary transmissions, such as in 1937. He announced again, as I've stated before, I have devoted much of my time during the year past to the perfecting of a new, small, and compact apparatus by which energy in considerable amounts can now be flashed through interstellar space to any distance without the slightest dispersion. A degree of confirmation of Tesla's interplanetary communications came from Arthur Matthews, who claimed that Tesla had secretly developed the Tesla scope for the purpose of communicating with Mars. Matthews' father was a laboratory assistant to the noted physicist Lord Kelvin back in the 1890s. Tesla once came over to England to meet Kelvin to convince him that alternating current was more efficient than direct current. When Matthews was 16, his father arranged for him to apprentice under Tesla. He eventually worked for him and continued the alliance until Tesla's death in 1943. It's not generally known, but Tesla actually had two huge magnifying transmitters built in Canada, and Matthews operated one of these. 
people mostly know about the Colorado Springs transmitters and the unfinished one on Long Island. The telescope is the thing the Tesla scope is the thing Tesla invented to communicate with beings on other planets. In principle, it takes in cosmic ray signals and eventually the signals are stepped down to audio. Speak into one end and the signal goes out the other end as a cosmic ray emitter. With the exception of Matthew's statements, there has been no concrete evidence that Tesla managed to communicate with extra with extraterrestrials or whoever was transmitting to Tesla's ELF receiver. It seems that Tesla was on the receiving end only. Nevertheless, Tesla managed to glean a substantial amount of good information from these transmissions, enough to influence his research and inventions for the remaining 43 years of his life. It was during this period that Tesla found himself ostracized by most of the scientific community. His efforts to interest others in such wild inventions as free energy, beam weapons, wireless power transmission, anti-gravity devices, anti-war shields, and resonation, as well as a plethora of others, no doubt led to him being considered a crackpot. Sadly, Tesla had become the epitome of a mad scientist. Yet it was obvious that his letters to the government and military had aroused some interest. A young American engineer engaged in war work consulted Tesla on a ballistics engineering problem because he could not get time on an overworked computer, and Tesla's mind was known to offer the nearest thing to it. Soon he became fascinated with Tesla's scientific papers and was allowed to take batches of them home to his hotel room, where he and another American engineer poured over them each night. They were returned the next day, a procedure that continued for about two weeks prior to Tesla's death. Tesla had received offers to work for Germany and Russia. After the inventor died, both engineers became concerned that critical scientific information had fallen into foreign hands and alerted United States security agencies and high government officials. Just how much of Tesla's work remains hidden in the top-secret bowels of the military is unknown. It can be deducted that Tesla's theories of extraterrestrials and global warming were taken seriously by some in high levels of authority because it is now known that the U.S. government and military were the first to give credence that UFOs were spacecraft from other planets. It is interesting to note that, between 1945 and 1948, an exchange of letters and cables occurred among the Air Technical Service Command at Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, Military Intelligence in Washington, and the Office of Alien Property. The subject, the files of the late Nikola Tesla. On September the 5th of 1945, Colonel Holliday of the Equipment Laboratory, Propulsion, and Accessories Subdivision wrote to Lloyd L. Shawless of the OAP, or Office of Alien Property, in Washington, confirming a conversation and asking for photostatic copies of the notes and papers of the late Tesla. It was stated that the material would be used in connection with projects of national defense by this department. Shawless made the material available to Air Technical Service Command, but there is no record of how many copies were sent, nor was the material ever returned. These were full photostatic copies, not merely abstracts. The Navy has no record of Tesla's papers. No federal archives have records of them. Four months after the photostats had been sent to Wright Field 
Colonel Ralph Doty, Chief of Military Intelligence in Washington, wrote James Markham of Alien Property, indicating that they had never been received. This office is in receipt of a communication from Headquarters, Air Technical Service Command, Wright Field, requesting that we ascertain the whereabouts of the files of the late scientist Dr. Nikola Tesla, which may contain data of great value to the above headquarters. It has been indicated that your office might have these files in custody. If this is true, we would like to request your consent for a representative of the Air Technical Service Command to review them. In view of the extreme importance of these files, to the above command, we would like to request that we be advised of any attempt by any other agency to obtain them. Because of the urgency of this matter, this communication will be delivered to you by liaison officer of this office in the hope of expediting the solicited information. The other agency that had the files, or should have had them, was the Air Technical Service Command itself. On October the 24th of 1947, David L. Bazelon, Assistant Attorney General and Director of the Office of Alien Property, wrote to the commanding officer of the Air Technical Service Command regarding the Tesla photostats. They had not been returned, and the OAP wanted them back. Obviously, at least one set of Tesla's papers had reached Wright Field, because on November the 25th of 1947, there was a response to the Office of Alien Property from Colonel Duffy, Chief of the Electronic Plan Section, Electronic Subdivision, Engineering Division, Air Material Command, Wright Field. He replied, These reports are now in the possession of the Electronic Subdivision and are being evaluated. This should be completed by January the 1st, 1948. At that time, your office will be contacted with respect to final disposition of these papers. They were never returned or even acknowledged to have ever existed at all. In response to a Freedom of Information Act request in 1980, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base stated, The organization, Equipment Laboratory, that performed the evaluation of Tesla's papers was deactivated several years ago. After conducting an extensive search of lists of records retired by that organization in which we found no mention of Tesla's papers, we concluded the documents were destroyed at the time the library was deactivated. Very handy, isn't that, that the papers supposedly were destroyed? Four years after the launch of Sputnik 1, in 1953, a Black Knight satellite was spotted by Dr. Lincoln La Paz of the University of New Mexico. Now, you would have heard of Lincoln La Paz before because I mentioned him in the Lonnie Zamora case and the Farmington Armada. Even the Department of Defense showed extreme interest in the Black Knight satellite and apparently they even appointed astronomer Clyde W. Tombaugh to run a search for the object. In 1957, the Black Knight satellite was once again in the headlines, after Dr. Luis Corrales of the Communications Ministry in Venezuela photographed it while taking photos of Sputnik 2 as it passed over Caracas. But unlike Sputnik 1 and Sputnik 2, this mysterious satellite orbited in an east-to-west orbit. The Russian and American satellites at that time moved west to east, thereby using the Earth's natural rotation to stay in orbit and keep up to speed. Back then our technology wasn't that advanced, so it would have been nearly impossible for a known entity to keep a satellite in that kind of orbit. In 1954, Donald Kehoe claimed a satellite was found to be orbiting Earth. 
Kehoe was originally a marine naval aviator who later became the most prominent name in ufology, establishing the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP. Kehoe's claim was picked up by the San Francisco Examiner and St. Louis Post-Dispatch. According to the articles, Kehoe said that the Secretary of the Air Force, Harold Talbot, was aware of the satellites and had even witnessed a silvery disc-shaped object in the sky, though Talbot dismissed these claims. The object, the Black Knight, soon popped up on radar screens of the U.S. Navy. Designated to locate spy satellites, the strangest thing about the object was its eccentric orbit. But not only was the Black Knight detected by the U.S., but by several other sources who could not explain its origin. According to these reports, the Black Knight satellite was orbiting Earth at 79 degrees off from the equator. According to calculation, the Black Knight made an orbit every 104.5 minutes and had an apogee of 1,728 kilometers and a perigree of just 216 kilometers, making it truly mysterious. With all of these above with all of the above information, it would make the object certainly an interesting topic of discussion. On August the 23rd of 1954, the technology magazine Aviation Week and Space Technology released a story about the Black Knight satellite that angered the Pentagon, who were trying to keep the information secret. Pentagon scare over the observance of two previously unobserved satellites orbiting the Earth has dissipated with the identification of the objects as natural, not artificial satellites. Dr. Lincoln LaPaz, expert on extraterrestrial bodies from the University of New Mexico, headed the identification project. One satellite is orbiting about 400 miles out, while the other track is 600 miles from the Earth. Pentagon thought momentarily the Russians had beaten the U.S. to space exploration. Four years after the launch of Sputnik, a mysterious object was seen shadowing Sputnik 1. The object was in polar orbit, but at that time neither the American nor the Russians had the technology or ability to maintain a satellite in polar orbit. So if it wasn't the U.S. and it wasn't the Russians, who placed it there? Polar orbits are often used for Earth mapping, Earth observation, capturing the Earth as time passes from one point, and reconnaissance satellites. This would put the Black Knight in the category of an observation satellite. In 1960, the Black Knight was again in the news, as researchers spotted the mysterious satellite again in polar orbit. The weight of the Black Knight satellite was calculated, and researchers estimated the object weighed over 15 tons. Again, neither Americans nor Russians had the technology to send up a satellite anywhere near that heavy. Research showed that the Black Knight moved twice as fast as any man-made object in orbit. Robert L. Johnson, director of the Adler Planetarium, stated that the Black Knight was very unpredictable and that it did not keep up a regular schedule. It would appear sometimes, and sometimes it didn't. It is very unpredictable, and it is very difficult to actually see in the sky. The military seemed very interested in the Black Knight satellite, to the point that, they even created a special committee to gather information and offer further insight on the Black Knight satellite. And it wasn't just military entities who photographed an unidentified satellite, but also the Smithsonian Obser Observatory at Harvard, as well as the Grumman Aircraft Corporation in New York. In fact, on September the 3rd of 1960, 
seven months after the satellite was first detected by radar, a tracking camera at Grumman Aircraft Corporation's Long Island factory took a photo of the Black Knight. At that point, people all over the world started identifying the object in the sky, which could be seen as a red light moving at higher speed compared to other satellites and in that anomalous east-to-west orbit. Things got really interesting a few years after the first time the Black Knight popped up on radar. In 1963, Gordon Cooper aboard Mercury 9 spacecraft reported seeing an unidentified object in the distance. The object was emitting a greenish light, according to Cooper. The astronaut's report was corroborated on Earth with several radars and about 100 other witnesses detecting and seeing the object. Official reports were that the equipment aboard Mercury 9 has experienced technical difficulties causing electronics aboard to malfunction. That caused Cooper to breathe in too much CO2, causing hallucinations. In later years, Cooper stated that he never actually saw anything during his Mercury 9 flight, that he did not see any green lights, UFOs, or anything similar. Cooper pointed out that the story regarding his UFO encounter during the Mercury 9 mission was pure fabrication by UFO enthusiasts. But this doesn't really seem logical, especially since NASA gave an explanation to what Cooper had reportedly seen. Cooper was well known for his UFO sightings, as, has, as he reported numerous UFOs during his missions. So we know that he wouldn't just fabricate a story of a UFO sighting during his Mercury 9 mission for the fun of it. Cooper also offered mission transcripts during his Mercury 9 mission to prove that no such sighting had been made. So if Cooper did not see the Black Knight while he was in space, what about all of those people who picked it up on radar? But the story of the Black Knight gets even more bizarre, with the French Space Commission's observation of the satellite while Jacques Vallée was on the staff. Despite excitement and intrigue by, by Vallée and his colleagues, a senior member of his team deleted their imaging of the satellite, for reasons unknown. While Vallée said he believed it was out of embarrassment for the Commission's inability to identify the orbiting object, it was becoming increasingly common for agencies around the world to notice the unidentified satellite, without explanation. In the 1970s, something new was discovered about the Black Knight satellite, and it was thanks to Duncan Lunan, a scientist from Scotland. It is claimed that Lunan was able to decipher the message that was being broadcast by the Black Knight satellite. Lunan plotted a vertical axis of the transmitted pulse sequence with a horizontal axis of echo delay time, and as a result, he found a picture of the Epsilon Butai star system, or better said, as it would look 15,000 years ago. According to Lunin, a message accompanied the star map. The message that the Black Knight satellite transmits is purported to be the following. Start here. Our home is Epsilon Butis, which is a double star. We live on the sixth planet of seven. Check that, sixth of seven. Counting outwards from the sun, which is the larger of the two. Our sixth planet has one moon. Our fourth planet has three. Our first and third planets each have one. Our probe is in the orbit of your moon. This updates the position of Arcturus shown on our maps. Now there is some controversy about what Duncan did and what, and what he deciphered. On his website, he says that he deciphered the original LDEs from the 1920s. He did not receive radio signals 
as a ham radio operator, as so many have claimed in the past. So are the images we have of the Black Knight satellite actual images? Most likely not, due to the fact that if this satellite is in polar orbit, it would be extremely difficult to photograph. Most of the images that we have today of the Black Knight satellite were taken by the STS-88 mission of the Endeavour Space Shuttle. The images displayed of the Black Knight satellite all over the internet are most likely those of a thermal blanket or a trunnion pin cover of the STS-88 mission, lost during one of the EVAs. The thing about this mission, and other shuttle missions, is that they actually fly in a semi-equatorial orbit, just like the International Space Station, meaning that the Black Knight, which is in polar orbit, would have flown by at thousands of kilometers an hour, extremely fast to even be visible, let alone be photographed. With this said, the images we have are most likely not those of the Black Knight satellite. This leads us to one of two conclusions. Either the Black Knight satellite does not exist and never has, or it does exist, it's still up there in polar orbit, and we do not have any images of it. Take in count that to obtain actual images of the Black Knight satellite, you would need to put a vehicle in polar orbit, which is possible, but photographing the actual object is far more demanding. Recently, some ufologists have claimed that NASA's high-tech spy plane, the X-37, which recently got back to Earth from its 675-day mission, was in fact in space to look at the Black Knight, among other things. What this space plane was doing in orbit for 675 days is a mystery, as is the payload it carried to space. The X-37 belongs to the U.S. Air Force, which owns two X-37s built by Boeing's Phantom Works Division. OTV-1, OTV-2, and OTV-3 are three of the known missions the X-37 successfully completed. The Black Knight satellite might still be out there, still in polar orbit, still a mystery, but we do not have any images that can provide enough evidence to state that the Black Knight is, in fact, an object in polar orbit, whose origins are not man-made. Now, in his book, Disneyland of the Gods, John Keel wrote of the Black Knight satellite, Never mind the almanac. You won't find it listed with Sputnik or Explorer. Black Knight is the name given to a radar blip discovered in 1960. This mystery satellite was found in polar orbit, something neither the U.S. nor the Soviets had accomplished. It was several time lapse. The strangest effect associated with the Black Knight is the long delay echo. The effect observed is, is that radio or television signals sent into space bounce back seconds or even days later, as if recorded and retransmitted by a satellite. They didn't begin with the Black Knight, but they were part of the mystery. Keel places the earliest LDEs in the 1920s. It's not in Keel's book, but in 1974 another mystery is claimed to have entered Earth orbit. No radar saw it. No ham operator listened to it. One man contacted it, or rather, was contacted by it. That man was science fiction author Philip K. Dick, who lived from 1928 to 1982. Dick is probably best known to the public for writing the stories on which the movies Blade Runner, Total Recall, and Screamers were based, among others. Before the movies, there were the books. That's where we'll find Dick's own encounter with a strange satellite which may be connected to the Black Knight. 
Beginning in February of 1974, Dick had a series of mystic experiences, substitute paranormal or Fortean or psychotic, if you like, for the word mystic. When he died only eight years later, he was still unsure of their origin or their meaning. Left behind was what he called the exegesis, an 8,000-page, 1,000,000-word, continuing dialogue with himself written late, late at night. This is where we go to find the Black Knight's return. Very little of Dick's exegesis has been published. The Black Knight material formed the core of four novels, Radio Free Albermuth, Vallis, The Divine Invasion, and The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. They remain in print. All four read as autobiography. The pivotal element in each is Dick's own contact with what may be the Black Knight, which he called the Vast Active Living Intelligence System, or Vallis for short. In a series of visions and coincidences, Vallis revealed itself to Dick as an ancient satellite from another world. It was sent here long ago by three-eyed, crab-clawed beings from a planet orbiting Fomohot. He called it Zebra because of its ability to mimic its surroundings. We'll discuss that in a moment when we return to the LDEs. Dick's contact began with a vision of St. Elmo's fire filling his apartment. It was a strange pink flame which burned but did not consume. He says his cat saw it too. It was strongest at night. Dick would lie in bed unable to sleep, watching the light show. He compared it to a rapid-fire succession of modern paintings by the likes of Klee and Kandinsky. At one point, he wondered if Soviet scientists were working with the aliens on psychotronic experiments. He thought they might be beaming images at him from a Moscow museum. His dreams during this period took on a whole new nature, so much so that he began referring to them as tutelary dreams because of their information-rich content. He experienced numerous waking visions as well. In some of his visions, Dick saw Soviet scientists rushing around behind the scenes to keep the alien satellite functioning. Strange texts, which appeared to be Russian operating manuals, were held up for him to see. The builders, as he came to call the aliens, were sometimes seen floating in large vats of water, observing the operation. The whole complex system was apparently set up solely for his benefit. Dick saw Vallis as a benign entity. He saw its position as teacher, sometimes protectress. I say protectress rather than protector because Vallis re reminded Dick of his twin sister Jane, who died in infancy. He credited Vallis with taking charge of his life, recovering a lot of income due from unpaid royalties, and even re-margining his typewriter. While listening to the radio one day, Dick heard the words of the Beatles, Strawberry Fields Forever, changed to a warning from Vallis. Your son has an undiagnosed right inguinal hernia. The hydrosily has burst and it has descended into the scrotal sac. He requires immediate attention or will soon die. Dick rushed him to the hospital and found every word to be true. The doctor scheduled the operation for that same day. Dick occasionally heard other, less positive messages from his radio at night, even when it was turned off. Admittedly, hearing voices and claiming harassment from an energy beam are symptoms of mental illness, but there seems to be something more at work here. Anybody can claim crazy, incredible things, but only Philip K. Dick produced works of art because of it. 
In the end, though, he may have overexposed himself to it. As he hinted in Vallis, too much of a good thing can kill you. Dick had another vision. He saw the pink St. Elmo's fire coalesce in a door perfectly proportioned to the golden mean. Through the door he saw ancient Greece, or some other Mediterranean land. He later regretted never stepping through it. This brings us full circle to the subject of long-delay echoes. As Dick sat staring at the Y and an ictius sticker in his window one afternoon, he pondered these strange occurrences. As he did, he saw first-century Rome fade in and remain superimposed on top of 1974 California. The experience lasted through February and March. He still knew which was the vision and which was real, but when he looked away and then looked back, Rome was still there. The message he decided Vallis was sending him is that we still live in Roman times. Nothing has changed. We still live under the rule of a cruelly corrupt empire, and the Christian apocalypse is near. Vallis predicted the downfall of a king. Nixon left office soon after. As Dick said in Vallis, the empire never ended. This catchphrase was made known to him in one of his tutelary dreams. If this concept of one reality superimposed onto another is difficult to conceptualize, let's consider a parallel from more orthodox sources. Without trying to establish or deny its validity, the field of psychic archaeology tries to do exactly what Dick had happened to him. This is akin to remote viewing with a time element involved, rather than one of space. Though Dick's vision of Rome faded, his tutelary dreams continued for six more years. So did the AI voice, a soft, feminine voice he heard in times of stress and during hypnagogic reverie. This was the aspect of Vallis, which reminded him of his late twin sister Jane. He claimed to have heard it during a high school physics exam. It gave him the answers 25 years earlier. During the Vallis days, it told him, the head Apollo is about to return. Saint Sophia is going to be born again. She was not acceptable before. The Buddha is in the park. Siddhartha sleeps, but is going to awaken. The time you have waited for has come. It is the exegesis. Dick quoted it in Vallis. It all appeared to end on November the 17th of 1980. Dick claimed to have had a, a, theo, a theopony, the manifestation of a deity in an observable way. That day, though, witnesses noted nothing unusual. Dick suddenly comprehended God as infinite, by nature, incomprehensible. In other words, the exegesis would never solve anything, because there was no answer to be had. Dick actually stopped writing for a time because of this, but was at it again before too long. It was the search that was important to him, after all. He wrote The Divine Invasion around this time, which was when the voice finally stopped. Dick persisted in speculating for the remaining year of his life, and managed to produce one more novel before the end of his life. Other influential people and highly respected authors, movie producers, and directors, and members of secret societies have claimed to receive communications from alien beings, including signals from the Black Knight. Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek television series and movies, is almost a household name. In 1973-1974, he was reportedly associated with a secret society called the Council of Nine. The Nine, in brief, were a group of prominent people who believed that the channeled messages received by their leaders were actually messages sent by extraterrestrials. 
Roddenberry allegedly based the Star Trek episodes on what he learned from the Nine, including the giveaway title he chose for a post-Star Trek series called Deep Space Nine. Many believe the source of the channeled messages was the Black Knight. Two separate people in different parts of the country who were each photographing the Blue Moon on July 31st 2015 captured what they believe is the Black Knight. The object was once again passing by the ISS. So who or what could the Black Knight satellite be? Is the Black Knight an ancient alien vessel? Could it be a satellite from somewhere in deep space that is trying to communicate with humans on Earth? Or is it simply a piece of space debris left behind by spacecraft made by Earthlings? The truth behind the Black Knight satellite is as mysterious as it gets, according to many. Many believe the anomalous object, said to be locked in a polar orbit around our planet, is, in fact, an extraterrestrial satellite sent to Earth to monitor mankind, and that the alien civilization behind it are the ancient Anunnaki. Over 60 years ago, it was thought to be a Russian spy satellite, and ever since its discovery, the mysterious object has gripped the interest of millions worldwide. Other items that it has been posited to be are Chinese spy satellites, thermal blankets, rocket casings, secret U.S. satellites. Time magazine also wrote about it in an article on the 7th of March, 1960. Here is what they said about it. Three weeks ago, headlines announced that the U.S. had detected a mysterious dark satellite wheeling overhead on a regular orbit. There was nervous speculation that it might be a surveillance satellite launched by the Russians, and it brought an uneasy sensation that the U.S. did not know what was going on over its own head. But last week, the Department of Defense proudly announced that the satellite had been identified. It was a space derelict, the remains of an Air Force Discovery satellite that had gone astray. The skeptical case goes something like this. Many skeptics claim the legend was retrospectively created after the 1998 pictures emerged, with the preceding odd events weaved into the story to make it more convincing. And those are the photos from the Discovery Space Shuttle mission. The noises from 1899 and 1928 remain a mystery, but the possible causes do not so far include an alien satellite, according to scientists. They insist research shows that in 1954, Mr. Kehoe had been promoting a UFO book and the articles had been written in a tongue-in-cheek fashion by the papers. There are reports that Mr. Cooper, so Gordon Cooper the astronaut, although maintaining he saw a number of UFOs in space, never claimed to have seen the Black Knight satellite on that mission or at all. Mr. Lunin is also later reported to have denied suggesting any alien satellite had its origins 12,600 years ago and that his conclusion that the noises were a star map were from unscientific methods. So folks, what are we left with? If it is just another piece of space debris, a thermal blanket as many suggest, then why have numerous governments and agencies shown so much interest in the enigmatic Black Knight satellite? If it's just a thermal blanket, then what about the enigmatic signals the alleged satellite has been sending out? Many believe that the Black Knight satellite is nothing more than space debris, yet articles written over 60 years ago tell a different story. And what if the Black Knight satellite is in fact a spy satellite left behind by the ancient Anunnaki or some other group who visited Earth in the distant past? Coming from Nibiru, 
The Anunnaki are claimed to have created a slave race on Earth in order to ex extract precious minerals from our planet, which eventually allowed them to save the atmosphere from their home planet, Nibiru. What if the Black Knight satellite is just one of the many pieces of ancient technology that have been left behind by the ancient Anunnaki when they arrived at Earth in the distant past? What if the Black Knight satellite was left on purpose in a polar orbit around the Earth, allowing its creators to keep an eye on our planet and its development? In fact, polar orbits are often used for Earth mapping, Earth observation, capturing the Earth as time passes from one point, and reconnaissance satellites. Observational alien satellite may sound far-fetched for many, and I agree, the claims are sensational. However, there are a number of strange things associated with the mysterious object and its origin. Interestingly, not long ago, scientists from the University of Edinburgh said there are possibilities that self-replicating robotic alien spacecraft are venturing into our solar system. In their work, Duncan Forgan and Arwen Nicholson affirm the possibility that highly advanced alien races are taking advantage of the gravitational field of the stars to speed up their spacecraft traveling through space. The scientists said, We can conclude that a fleet of self-replicating probes can indeed explore the galaxy in a sufficiently short time, orders of magnitude less than the age of the Earth. Is the Black Knight satellite an extraterrestrial piece of technology orbiting our planet? Or is there another explanation for it? It surely could be just a combination of unrelated information, something made up throughout the years or opinions of people that have overinterpreted the images provided to the public. Many questions, but not enough answers. The Black Knight continues to be a mystery in the sky. So, folks, I hope you found that one interesting. Like I say, I do realize this is a bit of a rabbit hole topic, and it's definitely something that's a lot more out there, so to speak, than many of the things I've covered in the past. But I've always been fascinated by this case. Now, I did go online to try and see if I could find these photos from the Smithsonian or from Grumman, and I couldn't find them. The photos floating around on the Internet are the ones that I talk about in the show notes here, which is that basically most of those photos look to be a thermal blanket. And again, that's why they're saying that if there are photos out there, of this craft they're probably classified and as always folks i'd like to leave you with a quote from art bell which is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out however it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached take care my friends and i'll talk to you soon